Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. I just want to add my uh, heartfelt thank you to all of you who participated in Night to Shine and made it happen. You know, this is one of uh, the highlights of our ministry year. And, uh, you know, we come into it and there's a whole lot going on, a lot of work, a lot of activity and organizing and all of this. Uh, and we all have our moments that night where we go, wow, I am so glad we did this. And of course, you know, it happens throughout the night for, for most of us who are there. One of them was uh, a young woman coming down the red carpet and she heard uh, the group uh, of uh, the theater kids from Carl Place were, were singing uh, princess songs from Disney and <laughs> dressed as princesses. And, and she grabbed her face and says, this is my favorite song. And I was like, that's it. It was like, we're like eight minutes in. And I was like, it's worth it. The whole thing was just worth it. And so when you see that, uh, just uh, thank you all. Some of you couldn't participate, but you helped in other ways. Thank you so, so much. Just a huge, you know, this is one of those things that as, as a pastor, you know, we, we have these kinds of events and we always love them and, and you guys are always so amazing. Um, and this is, you just, you, you really make us proud to be uh, a part of this spiritual family. And uh, just a huge, I was so glad, my goodness, my wife, she did such a great job. I mean, so I was really loving that. Um, and so thank you all for supporting her and being a part of it. That was super special, just personally uh, for me as well. So thank you guys for everything that uh, is going on here and uh, for all of your sacrifice and hard work for Night to Shine. Well, this week I was reminded of an older story. It's actually from a movie, Chariots of Fire. Some of you are familiar uh, with it, and it's the story of Eric Little, who is a world-class runner for Britain. And uh, it centers around the 1924 Olympics. And in it, it's really kind of a story about one man's uh, religious convictions and how it was going to jeopardize his shot at Olympic glory. And uh, the race that he was best slated in was actually being held on a Sunday, and he made headlines around the world because he refused to run because it was on the Sabbath. Big part of the, the movie and how he overcomes and what happens and the pressure and all of this kind of stuff. And it's, a, it's just a powerful story about, uh, about faith convictions and what we are willing to risk and sacrifice for them. And he ended up switching and getting into a race that he wasn't favored in. And that's all I'll tell you in case you're going to go look at it. But there's, there's a, another story line that was developed, which was super interesting and very, very powerful. And it was the competition that formed between Eric and his friend Harold, Harold Abrams, who was also a world-class runner. But as the story unfolds, you find out that Harold runs 
out of this sense of obligation and even having his identity wrapped up in it. Like he just sort of had to run because if he didn't run, he wouldn't see his value or worth. And so as Harold ran, it was running under the oppressive weight of his identity and, and self-worth and value. And as you watch Eric, you've come to find out that Eric runs because God made him fast. And he can't help but run because when he runs, he feels God's pleasure. See, one runs under the tyranny of a false belief system and the other runs for the glory of the true king. And it raises a question for us, which is, why do we run? Right? We get up every, every morning and we run. Right? So when I grew up, these things made noise. And I got this one, and it was like silent. And they thought, I'm like, so I got, I'll just add the soundtrack. So, and if you had rodents kind of as pets when you were growing up, um, you know, this might have been a part of, of uh, your, your early years. And they would just run and run and run and run. And, and you have to, you know, you keep running, but are you actually getting anywhere is kind of the, 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 the idea when you're watching. In fact, Trevor found me a video of, of uh, hamsters running, which I just thought was super fun. Um, because this is what they do. They just run. And you think, where are you going? You know, like, what's the plan here? You know? And around and around and around, get me in. And they try to run in two different directions. And who's going to... You know, run. <laughs> and so, so why do we actually run? What's the plan? Where are you heading? Because, you know, we wake up every morning and we run. We're constantly on the move and we go and we go and we go and we go. And a big question as to whether or not you are running <laughs> like a hamster in a wheel or whether you are running through your favorite national park it depends on why you run. Why do you run? You run because of the pressure of the false ideologies, the false kingdoms of this world? Or do you run for the glory and the joy of the true king? This is what we get to consider this morning. We're in the Gospel of Mark. We're doing a verse-by-verse -verse study of the Gospel of Mark. And so I'd encourage you to open up in a Bible to Mark chapter 2. We're in verse 23 here. And if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. The ushers will bring one uh, down for you. And uh, if you don't have an easy-to-read Bible at home. If your Bible's kind of old language and a little bit more, more challenging to kind of work through, we would encourage you to take this Bible home. This is our gift to you. We would love to put God's Word in uh, your hand in an accessible way. And so uh, feel free at the end here to just to take that home with you. We would love uh, for you to be able to even go back and reread some of the things that we're going to be talking about here. So Mark chapter 2 in verse 23, what we end up seeing here in this, this part of the Gospel of Mark is Jesus on the move. And what he's doing is he's crashing through cultural and social barriers, religious barriers, in order to bring us back into the presence and toward the heart of God. And so he doesn't care what obstacle he has to crash through. He's on the move in order to bring us back to that place. 
So we are here in ver- starting in verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And so Sabbath was a big deal to the Jewish people, especially during this time. I mean, it makes a whole lot of sense. It was one of the Ten Commandments, is one of the Ten Commandments. And so, you know, it's up there with like murder and adultery and things like that. So you, you, you want to take it serious. But what these people had done, they're, they're called the Pharisees here. They're the religious leaders of the day. They had set up all of these rules around the Sabbath to help you know how to keep the Sabbath. But those weren't God's rules. Those were man-made rules. And instead of bringing joy, they brought tyranny. And so Jesus, he ends up crashing onto the scene here, and he's deciding to take on some of this, uh, these misconceptions related to the Sabbath. In particular, what's going on is the, when they walk through and they grab the grain, and they crush the grain in their hands, and they take out the kernels, and they start to eat it, that was decided by the religious leaders that that was harvesting. Harvesting, of course, would be work. So you couldn't go along the road and do something like that because now you had violated the rules of Sabbath, or at least man-made rules of Sabbath. Verse 25, he answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. This is kind of an interesting reference that he makes. What he's talking about actually happened a thousand years earlier. And so this is 3,000 years ago from our day and age. And what what happened is Israel had a king that God's favor no longer rested upon, King Saul. And so Saul was removed by God, said, you're no longer going to be king of Israel. And God had his prophet Samuel anoint David, the greatest, the, the pinnacle of of the, of the ancient Israelite kings, he anoints David as king. Saul finds out he's not so happy. He decides he's going to kill David. David's on the run. So he's been anointed king by God, but he doesn't yet sit on the throne. And so what Jesus is doing is he's making a reference to that period of history because it's right in the middle of those events where this story about the this consecrated bread takes place. And so David, on the run from Saul, his men are hungry. They get up to the tabernacle, the consecrated bread. It was only meant for the priests. It was out. And David asks, do you have anything for us to eat? And the priest is like, well, you know, only the consecrated bread. And David's like, we'll take it. And, of course, he eats it because their man-made rules and religious traditions don't outweigh the need for hungry people to eat especially when you find out later that this was going to be the king of Israel. Now, I think Jesus references this. He could have just said, because he's about to tell them, that he's actually king of everything anywhere. But I think Jesus is referencing this story because he's making a claim. See, Jesus also had been anointed king. He had been anointed at his baptism by God the Father himself. Holy Spirit came on him. It's a symbol of anointing. And in that moment, Jesus started this public ministry. He is now the rightful king of the Jews. But he's only been anointed king. He isn't yet enthroned as king. 
there are still false kings in that age and in our age that are clamoring for our allegiance. And Jesus references this, I think, because he's asking those people in that day and he's asking these people in this day. He's saying, am I your king? And this is a question that we have to kind of stop and ask because, you know, so many of us, we view Jesus as this like, you know, he's a great guy. He was kind of a mystic and he went through and he did these nice things. And sometimes people say, you know, it was everyone else who, who tried to force him into leadership. And every time you come across passages like this, which are many in the Bible, you find Jesus making these radical claims. He's saying, listen, you want to understand how to live in this world and be a part of my kingdom. I am the true king. And if you run for any king, if you work for any king, if you're on the move for any king other than him, it will end in tyranny, not joy and delight. Look at verse 27. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So you can think of it, what he's kind of highlighting here is really two sides of this conversation. One of them is, the Sabbath really was made for us. It, it was meant to be a time of rest. So I, I grew up in New Jersey. I got out, so I'm glad. <laughs> Sorry for any New Jersey folks, but I did get out. Now I'm home, uh, and so I'm really glad to be home. But when, when I was growing up, my, my grandparents uh, lived in Paramus, New Jersey. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that area, but, uh, and it's still a little bit today, not much, but they had real blue laws in effect. So everything shut down in that whole area. You couldn't do anything. You couldn't buy anything. You couldn't go. I think maybe they had gas stations and some restaurants or something. But like blue laws were a thing even in my lifetime. So that's early 1900s um, for the young folks here. But no, and, and they really did this. This was like a thing where society actually did recognize things like this. But nowadays we're like, oh, you know, we don't really. Now, we, now if I don't get my Amazon delivery on Sunday, I get frustrated. But like things change so fast. But the idea, imagine this. Imagine being able to be part of a culture where we really did all pull back for a day of reflection, of worship, of being with family, of being with friends, of being connected to a spiritual family, of, of allowing our trust in God to take away the anxiety of having to work and strive and toil and all of this. So there's this huge part of Sabbath that was human-centric. And it was pointed and made and done for the good of humanity. And so, yes, good can be done on the Sabbath. In fact, it ought to be done. But there's something else that's going on here because he says there in verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And that's kind of a, a startling claim because he's already said he's the true king of Israel. But now he's saying he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And you go back and you go, well, what's the Sabbath about? And how did it get, get in, come to being? Well, it, it, it's because of creation. So at the very beginning of Genesis, God creates everything. He creates in six days. On the seventh day, God rested. God established the Sabbath. It's his idea for the good of humanity. Jesus is saying he's Lord of the Sabbath. So he's asking again, who is Jesus to you? Because right now he's claiming to be your king worthy of citizenship in his kingdom and he is your God. And all of the power and the authority and the might that comes with that is his. I mean, these are just brazen claims that Jesus is making toward our hearts. And, you know, I think this is so important because it isn't enough to simply know about Jesus. 
It's not simply enough to go to church and do some religious things. He's calling for a type of surrender and a type of allegiance that so many of us in our individualistic day are unwilling, even nervous, to grant him. And he's saying, but this is where you will find true Sabbath rest. Chapter 3, verse 1. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man was, with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. So part of the rules that they had made was that you couldn't do things like healing on the Sabbath. And so you weren't able to, to do this very thing. Jesus knew the rules. They knew the rules. And of course, Jesus, they know what's going to happen. You almost think this is kind of a sting operation, right? So how'd this guy get there? And how was he sitting there? What are they waiting? They're kind of like, Let's, this is going to happen. We know what Jesus is going to do. We know it's going to cause trouble. Then we're going to finally have a reason to accuse him for breaking our rules. And then, of course, what ends up taking place here in verse 3, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone, which is sort of an interesting thing because in the Gospel of Mark, every other time Jesus did a healing, somebody came to him and asked him for the healing. And in this case, Jesus initiates the healing. He sees the guy. He knows the guy isn't going to even ask. The guy can't say, hey, can you please heal me today? Because he knows the rules too. There's no healing on the Sabbath. So he doesn't, he's not even willing to ask Jesus to do what they know Jesus wants to do. But Jesus, he makes a scene. In fact, it's kind of a spectacle because he's here in front of all of the religious leaders. He's like, stand up. We're going to play a game here with the religious leaders. I'm going to ask him a couple of simple questions and see what they say. See how it goes. And he does. Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus, verse 4, then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and the hand was completely restored. Of course Jesus was going to do the healing. And he made it a point to drive it home that it is right to do good. And it doesn't matter what risks, and it doesn't matter the cost, and it doesn't matter how this is going to play out for Jesus in the end. We'll see that in a minute. It's right to do good. And his two questions really silenced them. So in Greco-Roman rhetoric of the day, if your enemies, your opponents, stopped debating you, it means you won. They were done. Like your arguments were now impossible to beat. And Jesus, he asked them a couple of simple questions. Is it right to do evil on the Sabbath by not helping someone? Or is it right to do good? And of course, everyone knows the answer. It's right to do good. Of course, it's always right to do good. How much more so on Sabbath? Then he asked this other little question. Is it right to to kill or give life? It's like, well, nobody's really talking about killing or giving life, Jesus. And I kind of feel like there's some irony in this because, you know, I feel like there's like setting up like a little sting operation on Jesus and they don't realize he's kind of doing the same exact thing. He's sort of setting them up. He asks them that somewhat unrelated question, whether it's right to kill or to give life. And then all of a sudden in verse 6, we see, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So, of course, they're accusing him of healing on the Sabbath and that being wrong. They turn around and plot his death on the Sabbath. 
and they plot it with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were a different group of people, unrelated to the Jewish people. They were actually more Roman in their allegiances. That's why they're Herodians after Herod, who was the, the, the other false king of the Jews during this time period. Herod and his followers were in complete opposition to the Pharisees. These people should never have gotten along and been able to conspire about anything. But to come against Jesus, they can, con they can conspire. And the thought of killing Jesus is, of course, equivalent to actually killing him on the Sabbath. It was already in their hearts what they wanted to do. So then we get to this little idea where he says in verse 5, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed. I think a lot of folks have a picture of God as angry. If you Google angry God, you'll come up with pictures like this one, right? This is, this is God's angry face, right? Like, like remember Mr. Potato when he was kind of get angry? He had to like, uh, he had to get his angry face on and they had to like, did I just date myself? That's like Toy Story. The first, anyway, so uh, it was a great, you should watch it. Uh, and so uh, this is God's angry face and the angry face for us is how most of us relate through much of our life to God. He's actually pretty angry. He's upset in the world, and he's mostly going to be upset at me. In fact, he's going to punish me. You ask people, how do you feel you're going to go in the future? Is God going to have mercy on you? Is he going to invite you in? And most people say, I hope so. What's the ambiguity for? You're not so sure how God will respond because you know that you've done wrong, and you know that you've sinned, and you know that God must punish sin. And so we have this idea of God as this angry God. And of course, now we see Jesus angry. But we know why Jesus was angry. We get all the context of why he was angry. And when you start to read it, you're like, well, I think he should be angry. That kind of hardness of heart that would let a guy continue to suffer when Jesus could actually alleviate the suffering, it's just, he should be angry. And so when you bring that back out to God, you have to stop and say, all right, well, how is it that God is angry? Where do we get these ideas? Why can we paint him like this as if he's this, this angry deity waiting to pop us in the head when we get out of line? And if you go back to the original creation story, you start to see, get some of the hints as to what was going on here. So in, in the creation, in Genesis, in the first three chapters, I'd love for you guys to go home and read that this week. It's a fantastic read. What you actually see unfolding is God goes and he creates on these six days, and on the seventh day, he rests. Remember, that's where we get the Sabbath idea. But why would he rest? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, he's exhausted? Like, he ran out of energy? He was like, oh, that was a lot of heavy lifting. Now it's time for me to snooze, because I'm like, it's not like after night to shine, we were all like, oh, I'm so tired. Like if you used to, you, on Saturday morning, I heard about the night to shine hangover. A whole lot of people are like, I'm so tired, right? Because we're, we're limited and we get tired. We fatigue. Does God get tired that he needed to rest? No, you see, this does, God doesn't rest because he's tired. He's, he's all powerful. He's omnipotent. He doesn't get tired. Why did he rest? So in the Hebrew mindset, in the, in the Hebrew language, resting isn't because he's tired. Resting is because the work is done. Think of it as ceasing to work, ceasing the task. Why could he cease? Because now it's finished. 
And so what is actually going on here, and really even the, the painting that this is a part of actually captures it. This is the Sistine Chapel. It's Michelangelo. And this isn't God in judgment and wrath. This is actually the creation of the sun and moon in the Sistine Chapel. And you could even see it there in the image. This is God. This isn't his angry face. This is his work face. This is what God does when it's time to get serious. And so why did he create? Why did he burst into the scene? It's because the planet wasn't hospitable for us. Because the planet was enveloped in chaos and darkness. And if you read the Genesis account, the waters that cover the deep, that's a symbol of chaos. And if you, and if you think about the fact that it was, it was just, there was no sun, it was all darkness. This is, the, this is what the world looked like before God broke in and said, this is unacceptable. The world can't stay like this. It can't stay in darkness. It can't stay in chaos ruled by the waters. Instead, I am going to wrench the sun into existence. And I am going to put the sun and I'm going to put the moon in their place so that humanity will have light and they will have rhythms and they will have seasons. And I'm going to pull the dry ground out of the water to give them a place to live. And on that land, I am going to give them trees and birds and animals. And I'm going to give them everything they need to bring delight to their souls because it is always good. To do good. And after all of it was just right, and after he'd created Adam and Eve and he put him in the garden, he said, This is very good. And then he rested because it was good. There was no other work that needed to be done. He could now rest. And so he does. And then we broke the planet with our sin and our rebellion. And God got back to work, setting things right, sending Jesus, the cross. It's all a part of God's great redemptive work. Jesus himself said, my father is always at work, so too I will work. Why? Because as long as there are broken-hearted people, as long as there is heartache and chaos in the world, as long as there is sin destroying us and separating us from our creator, as long as there is misery and tears, God is at work. And he calls his people to work. If you want to be a citizen of God's kingdom, if you're willing to pledge your allegiance to King Jesus and his promised kingdom, then you too will work. See, this is God's holy discontent. Think of, think of what happens in the soul when you see something in the world that isn't right and you simply have had enough of it. And you must act. You must do something against that wrong. That's your holy discontent. Years ago, Cheryl and I had a holy discontent. We looked out over the island and we thought, this isn't right. There are so many people who are far from God and they, they, they don't even care about the word because it's been shrouded by so much religious tradition and, and archaic language and all of this and people don't understand the relevance of and the importance of Jesus and the whole scheme of their life. And we said, this isn't right. And a holy discontent started in our hearts and we said, we got to do something about it. It's largely why Beacon 
has, has come into existence because we said there is a, this isn't right. Something must be done. Here at Beacon, there's folks all over the place who have a holy discontent. And it's different things for different people. And some people say, you know, there should never be lonely people in the world. So we start these Bible-based small groups to give people a spiritual family that they can connect to and be a part of. And you see, that's their holy discontent. When there are hurting people and, and there's misery and there's sickness, and if they can bring some sort of joy or peace and alleviation of that suffering, they go, that's what I want to do. That's their holy discontent. The Night to Shine event is run by folks who have a holy discontent. They say, no, it isn't right. It isn't fair. It's not the way the world ought to be. There ought to be love, and there ought to be this acceptance, and there ought to be a celebration, and that's what we're going to do. And they will not rest until that becomes reality. What is your holy discontent? If you want to run your race for the glory of God, then find your holy discontent. Don't just go through the motions of your life. Just don't run here and there and end up nowhere. You're chasing after too many false ideologies. You're serving the false king of this age. When the true king is saying, there is, a, there is so much more. God is at work. His son Christ is at work and he will not rest until one day. When the king who has been anointed will return, the scriptures tell us, and King Jesus will actually then sit fully on the throne. We're in the time between the anointing and the enthronement. And when he comes again, he will sit on the throne and every tear will be wiped away. Every heartache will be healed. Every sickness and disability will vanish in the power that he brings. That is the hope. It's the eternal Sabbath that the scriptures promise to us. And he says, you can have that. It can be your legacy if you're willing to surrender your life to the king. Pledge your loyalty and then live out your holy discontent in his kingdom. I'm going to ask the band to come up and Sarah, they're going to lead us in a time of communion coming to the Lord's table, the Eucharist. And as uh, they do that, I just want to offer up for us a prayer that God would do this and so much more in each of our lives. Let's, let's pray. Lord, what we're asking for is that you would do that thing that only you can do, that you would stir up hearts. There are people here, Lord, even now they've felt it. They're experiencing a tug on their heart and they're saying, Lord, I want everything you have for me, nothing less. I want to serve you as king. And Lord, let this be the day they surrender fully and completely so that they don't need to live life serving the false gods of this age, the false king of this time, but instead would serve King Jesus so that you might let us run our race for the glory of God. That's what we want, Lord. And there are others here who have come and experienced so much heartache and hurt. And they feel distant from you. And Lord, what I want is that you would, would let your presence be felt even now by them. Let them feel your love through the people here, through the worship and the prayers, through the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Let them know, Lord, 
your deep and sacrificial and forever kind of love. May they feel it, Lord. Feeling your presence now, knowing you, we're here with them. We pray it in Christ's name.